Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my returning guest from too long ago, back on episode 26 in 2017 when we did Oz, uh, from the land of Oz, it's Terry Mack. Welcome back, Terry. Hello, Eamon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Now, first things first, uh, congratulations on a somewhat delayed Premiership title for Liverpool. Thank you, but really, I can't take all the credit myself. I think the boys on the team and the manager deserve most of the credit. Yes, <laughs> that's fantastic. At last, coronavirus delayed it for a while, but fantastic. And how do you get how do you get people like Jurgen Klopp and Mo Salah, who are not only great at their job, but also turn out to be thoroughly great human beings as well? I think we've been lucky in the last few years with the new ownership. They've, you know, they've gone after talents that really help the club and help them move forward. It's been lovely to watch the last five years as we've gotten better and better. Fantastic stuff. Well, we don't often talk about sports on this podcast, but a quick mention for Liverpool and the title. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? And also, let's talk about recent 2008 acquisitions. Um, as well as knowing about Liverpool from your Facebook page, I know you're also nearing the complete run, Terry. It's very close now, Eamon. One prog and two megs away. Wow. <laughs> I just need that prog 213. Just give me prog 213 and I'll be happy. Although I believe there is one in Sydney waiting for me. I just have to get in touch with Mr. Mark Sexton and he'll send it on down. Because you've been trying to acquire them from uh, Australia and the Southern Hemisphere rather than going around the world, haven't you? Uh, no, I have been buying from England as well. Oh, um, you have, right. I think the last time we spoke I was around about 200 short, so I'd managed to get hold of over 2,000 of them within the first 12 months of collecting. But those last 200 have taken me close to three years to, to get hold of every little last one. Of course, along the way, that means often buying big collections. So although I've got the 2,500 progs and megs in my collection, there's also an extra 3,000 spares that I've been selling off as well. Oh, fantastic. And how much room does a complete run take up? An entire wall of the bedroom and half of the dining room with the other spares. If I bring home any more boxes of 2000 AD, my daughter will shoot me. <laughs> OK, well, you know, fantastic news and um, well done on completing the run. Almost there. Almost there. The silly thing is, though, that we then go on to getting the reprints, and then, of course, you want the Titan editions, and then you've got the US Eagle editions, and then there are the hardcovers, and for my shame, I've recently started buying the French editions. Oh, blimey. Okay, so it doesn't <laughs> stop. No, I'm, I'm hoping it'll stop soon. I think once I've got those last few, I'm going to just knock it on the head and say, that will do. That will do. Well, it's been since 2017. Uh, the podcast, unfortunately, is too successful because I have too big a waiting list. But we mentioned a hunt. Tell us what book you've picked for your second outing in the book club. We're going to be having a look at flesh today, Eamon. Fantastic. So, version control. I've got a second edition of The Rebellion Trade, which I think was originally 2011. This is 2016, my version. What mm -hmm. have you got? I've got the same edition you have, the Dino Files from 2016. And Splendid. the original Progs and the reprints in Volume 4 of the magazine 
and the reprints in the annuals. You've got them all, yeah. So I seem to have the digital collection as well for some reason. Ended up with both, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> writers Pat Mills, Ken Armstrong, Kelvin Gosnell, Jeffrey Miller and Studio Giolitti. Art mm-hmm. by Boykes, Ramon Sola, Felix Carrion, Massimo Bellardinelli. There's also, at the end of the book, we've got James Mackay, some Rufus Dayglow, and even a page of Kevin O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And this features stories right back from Prog 1, of course. Yeah, Flesh was in that original lineup. It wasn't going to be to start with. It was going to be Sharko. Um, if we look at the origins of Flesh, Uncle Pat, Pat Mills, coming from action, wanted something in the new lineup of 2000 AD similar to Hookjaw because that had been one of the most popular stories back then, so was going to start with Sharko. But he felt that Sharko wasn't quite science fiction-y enough, so that was put aside to be coming at a later date, and he came up with Flesh. Yes, and I was just reading this morning that he had even ideas of perhaps using it in action, but he'd put it to one side when action ran into its troubles, and then, of course... Uh, as you say, Prog 1 of 2000 AD, there we are, Whip Flesh. So why did you pick this one, Terry? It's, I think, I mean, I was six when 2000 AD started, and as I mentioned before, I did read it as a child. I was an original Prog 1-er. And when you're six years old, if you've got dinosaurs versus cowboys with time travel, that's just the most awesome thing in the world. It was a fantastic story, plus... It had all that gore. It had people getting eaten. And all six-year-old boys love dinosaurs and cowboy movies. So this is just, put the two together, fantastic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It is, um, as Conrad Lydon from Space Minute 2000 says, it's like a focus group for children and comics, isn't it? That's right, yeah. (laughs) Put them all together. So for anybody who hasn't gone back to the originals or wasn't a prog runner like yourself, tell us, what's the basic outline for Flesh? In the 23rd century, man has run out of animals to farm and everything is now synthy meat. But humans, of course, still desire the taste of real flesh. So with time travel technology, they send a bunch of cowboys back in time to round up, herd and farm the dinosaurs, which they then beam to the future in packs of meat ready for humanity to consume. Fantastic. As you say, time travel, cowboys and, of course, uh, dinosaurs. And I noticed that in his introduction to this book, Pat Mills mentions uh, a film, Valley of the Guanji, which I seem to remember, because that, that did the cowboys and dinosaurs things. Um, that may have been a Ray Harryhausen, I think, was it? I've never heard of it, if I'm honest with you. I'll have to right. look it up. Because I I'll don't have to check that on that one. Um, but he, he also mentions in his introduction um, a very sort of Pat Mills uh, concept, which is this idea of the oppressed, the underdogs, and that in this book, uh, the dinosaurs themselves are the the symbols of the oppressed and underdogs being ruled over by a tyrannical corporation. Um, Uncle Pat having a go at a corporation. <laughs> Basically, Pat Mills is corporate bad, nature good. Just those four words, and he's managed a career out of that. Um, there's obviously a lot more to it than that, and he's a lot more subtle in places, but it it really is a, a Mills trope that he likes to write about often. 
And what was it, because you've mentioned Hookjaw and Shaka already, what was it about the late 70s in British comics that had us so fascinated and terrified of deadly killer beasts? I think it's, I mean, I don't know this for sure, it's just my opinion, but around the time of the 70s, people were becoming aware of ecology. And while they weren't quite up on the ozone layer and greenhouse gases, people were starting to look at things like um, the destruction of landscapes and petrol and over-farming and things like that. So I think nature kind of provided this fear factor for humanity, which is why we saw a lot of things like that at the time with um, giant sharks, grizzly bears, uh, giant bees. There was this fear of humanity versus ecology and nature. Yes, it's interesting stuff, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, Pat, famous, of course, for what he called his cribs, borrowing from popular culture. Uh, So we had, obviously, Peter Benchley's novel, Jaws, and it became the film with Steven Spielberg. And then um, he just... Because I think uh, he possibly he you know he created all of those strips, Hook, Jaw, and Shaco as well, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Um, Wagner took over Shaco with episode two, and um, in I was having a look earlier at Thrill Power Overload and Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave, and Pat said that he knew he wanted dinosaurs and cowboys and time travel, but he couldn't work out why. And apparently John Wagner said, well, why don't they go back to eat them? Ah. So it was Wagner that gave him that spark of going back and farming. That great creative partnership of John and Pat uh, back in the 70s. And Pat doing that thing, which he quite often did with comics then, which was sort of winding up the idea and setting it off running and then letting others sort of pick it up and run with it, I guess. In rereading it, though, it's... It's Pat's stamp all over it. Obviously, he rewrote a lot of the scripts in those first 20 or so progs. But the, just I just noticed little Pat touches here and there, the real heavy emphasis on the uh, nature versus man. And even one of the uh, authors, I think it was Kelvin Gosnell, said pretty much Pat over oversaw everything with it. Right. Uh, yes, I mean, again, what a sort of um, whirlwind of creative energy he was back then, but still is, of course, with um, Space Warp coming out very soon, as we record. Yeah, I've seen that. It's a Kickstarter, is it, or print-on-demand? I've got to check that out. Yeah, I think it's, they haven't done a Kickstarter, so I think you can order it as print-on-demand or digitally through uh, the various uh, online book suppliers. So... You've mentioned this great concept of cowboys, and that, you know European comics still very popular to run cowboy stories. Uh, thinking of Mobius and Colin Wilson and people like that. But in British comics, we haven't done an awful lot of cowboys, um, certainly from two thousand eight onwards. But it's great to see some of the sort of Western tropes in this time traveling story, even down to you know traditional cowboy. Uh, saloon bars and punch-ups and so on. Yeah, it's it, you. You know, you, the saloon bars have those swinging doors at the front. There's a piano player. There's guys playing poker around a table. It, it is all of those tropes. And I seem to remember being a kid in the seventies that most of the movies on TV were westerns. That's kind of we either had Hammer Horror or John Wayne, and, yeah, and that's, that's what you were right. getting on the telly. Yeah. So. 
it may very well have been more popular in Britain in the 70s, although, you know, it is an American genre. Yeah, I think you're right about those movies, though. Yes, yeah, certainly, if, you know, you came home from school and there was something on the telly, it was probably a Western. And if you were lucky, you got to stay up a bit later and watch the Hammer Horrors as well. Um, yeah, you get them on a Friday night. Shout out to my Uncle Harry, who'd let me stay up and watch them while my parents wouldn't. They were great, weren't they? <laughs> a, hammer, a Hammer Horror double bill, or a, when they doubled some of the Hammer Horrors with one of those American um, science fiction films, like, you know, um, The Man with X-Ray Eyes or things like that. Those I remember. Well, yeah, and those kinds of things going back to the 50s, those sci-fi movies, Man with the X-Ray Eyes, but there was also back then this atomic age fear of uh, mutations, and quite often these early sci-fi films would have giant ants or giant bees, and these were the result of nuclear fallout, which I think added in to the origin of these 70s man-versus-nature giant-eating creatures that were so popular. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I've, you're quite right. I forgot about the giant ants. There was even a giant rabbits movie as well, you know, who would believe, um, <laughs> in which they tried very hard to make uh, rabbits look threatening. But anyway, um, so back to dinosaurs and the story of uh, the Trans Time Corporation. Uh, now, of course, for a, a comic from this time or for any good story, we need some good villains. Uh, and we have some pretty good characters in uh, flesh, don't we? Well, yeah. Um, Claw Carver is our bad guy, who is based on Lee Marvin's character in Cat Baloo. Um, uh, uh, essentially, our hero is Earl Reagan, who is the uh, who's the boss of the farmers, the cowboys who are herding up and rounding up all the dinosaurs. But his antagonist, of course, is Earl Reagan, who runs. Is it Claw City, Carver City? Yeah. A, a huge domed entertainment place in the uh, ancient dinosaur times. So we've got Earl Reagan as our hero or anti-hero, Claw Carver as the bad guy, uh, Joe Brontowski is Earl's second-in-command, and, of course, Old One-Eye herself, who is the protagonist of the story in rereading it. I didn't realise it as a child, but the whole story is told from her point of view. The the narrative is from her perspective. All of the descriptive boxes on what characters are thinking are about Old One-Eye. Yeah, it's fascinating because in our notes I described Old One-Eye as a sort of great villain for 2000 AD, but actually looking at Flesh Book 1... She is one of the most marvellous characters from the early years of the prog, but she's not the villain. She's this wonderful sort of um, sinned-against protagonist, isn't she? She's 120 years old and been living her life quite happily until these time-travelling cowboys show up. Yeah, absolutely. And what a, I mean, what a great character. We've had Hookjaw, we've had, you know, Shaco will turn up later, but here we've got old One-Eye, everybody's favourite dinosaur in a way, I guess. Yeah, uh, and just marvellous stuff. So there's the great stuff about the writing, about corporations, about man versus nature. There's wonderful science fiction stuff thrown in there with time-travelling machines and various space vehicles or hover. What, what do they call them, I suppose, these hover vehicles that they chase the dinosaurs in when they're not on horseback. But there's also, we've got the artwork. We start with, I guess mainly European artists who were so commonly used at the time because they were 
quick and able to do this stuff for a weekly comic. What do you think about this early black and white art in um, Flesh Book 1 and Book 2? It, it varies, doesn't it? Boyks, if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, is, I'm not sure about wonderful, it. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. That first episode is fantastic. Although, in reading uh, Uncle Pat's book, he gives pretty much most of the credit to Doug Church. He says that Doug Church, who was one of the original art editors there on 2000 AD with Kevin O'Neill, pretty much laid out the first six issues completely of 2000 AD, and then that was sent to the artists to draw based on his layouts. And Doug Church apparently read the first few scripts from Mills and said, no, you're going to have to rewrite this to be more visual. So I think he deserves a bit of credit, even though he's not credited in the books, um, for those awesome, awesome layouts. Like Boyk starts it fantastically. Ramon Sola then takes over for most of it. And some of his stuff is a bit rushed. It looks kind of like he's had to draw five pages in a day, which I think later on he did some of that with Blackhawk. It looks a bit rough. But it's still such fantastic energy, real dynamism, splash pages, of course. The very first episode there, that splash page of the first page of the man versus the dinosaurs and 2080 was unusual at the time in that it had a lot of splash pages. Back then, British comics would be three or four pages per episode, so they were trying to get 10 to 12 panels to a page. Splash panels were something more for your Marvel DC type of thing, but 2080 was one of the first to really bring that fork to the fore with British stuff. And that, that opening splash page, my goodness, why did the dinosaurs become extinct? Find out in flesh. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic stuff, isn't it? Wonderful. So that's, I mean, those are the artists, particularly in book one. Book two, if I jump ahead a bit, we get um, Massimo Bellardinelli taking over, don't we? Yeah, it's pretty much all Bellardinelli except the last two episodes. Um, I think at the time he would have been pulled off flesh to do Angry Planet for Tornado because that would have been around the time Tornado was starting up and right. he was uh, he got the centre pages for Angry Planet for that. And without giving too much away, old One-Eye has died at the end of uh, book one, although in a memorable end to book one also, <laughs> even old One-Eye's skeleton turns out to be deadly, um, yeah. which is great stuff. But then in book two, we get a new sort of killer dinosaur lead, comes up big hungry then is it a nothosaur a nothosaur yes with book two Eamon I, I haven't gone back and had a good look at that again I, I do remember it from being a kid but really book one for me was the best thing about 2018 in the early days and it seems to me that book two is it, it's basically a rejig of the first story only this time the base is on the sea rather than on land Although we do get the return of Claw Car as well. And we get some marvellous vehicles and weird sort of oil rig type bases on the sea. Plus, of course, Bellardinelli drawing monsters and creatures, which is always lovely to look at and behold. Um, yeah. As ever, perhaps his human figures, not, not, the, not the most outstanding on the page compared to his creepy landscapes and creepy creatures. But, uh, yeah, and, and we have the giant scorpions instead of the giant spiders. Uh, but some, still some really lovely dynamic artwork in there. 
So let's go back then. Book one, which is uh, obviously your favourite. Uh, you've mentioned, because as well as creepy creatures and dinosaurs, deadly dinosaurs, we also get things like the giant spiders. Um, always a... Uh, you know, a terrifying concept whenever they turn up, and they've been on the cover of 2008 a few times. Quite notable episode here with giant spiders, isn't there? Yeah, it's it's almost as if Uncle Pat's gone right. We we've got the dinosaurs, we've got the snakes, we've we've got everything. What else can we throw in? Oh, let's let's get some spiders as well. Why not? <laughs> yeah, another giant animal that kills humans, uh, paralyzing poisons. Um, Great sequences of a giant web with Earl Reagan trapped in the web and giant spiders sort of moving along the strands towards him. Um, lovely stuff. Although some of the pages there, the art, the art styles do jump about a bit, don't they? Well, if we look back at the credits for it here, we've got writers Studio Gilitti. Yes. I am presuming that that would be a Spanish or Italian art studio. I think that's I- Italian. Yes. I, I I don't ever remember seeing any writing on 2000 AD farmed out to a studio, so I'm not sure what that is. And we also have a artist credited as Felix Carrion. Now that's got to be a pseudonym, Carrion Flesh, yes. Felix Flesh. So I'm not sure if that's Boyks couldn't keep up and did a quick job, or Ramon Sola just sort of knocked it out. It all looks like Ramon Sola. So, yeah, whether or not that's like a, a scarer being Long John Silver or Ian Gibson being Emberton, I don't know. It's difficult for me to be able to pick these artists from back then. We'd need someone who's a bit more of an expert than me. Maybe David Roach or someone would be able to spot immediately who who's the style is. Yes, but it, he'd tell us straight Still dynamic stuff, still... Uh, yeah, and Gialitti, I believe, that's an Italian art studio and at sometimes a pseudonym for, I think it was Albert Gialitti, who was a, um, uh, I think he was, he ran the studio, but he also obviously he did some writing himself and um, presumably at times farmed some of this out to uh, other members of his studio. So yeah, great, giant spiders in book one, giant scorpions in book two, it's all black and white and inky stuff, although there was some colour stuff. This is, I mean, I've got black and white collection here. There was some colour stuff in book two, I gather. Yeah, the centre pages uh, were colour for a while. Um, I think it came in... Let's say, okay, yeah, 86. So that was the merge issue with Star Lord. And I think it got the centre pages for the first ten or so episodes. Yeah. I may very well be wrong, but... A quick flip through the the reprints will show double page spreads. Yeah, there, there was a few of them, and then I think the double page center color spread was given over to a four part Robo Hunter poster around around issue one hundred. And um, the other thing is, of course, if you're drawing dinosaurs in 1977, 1978. Reference material, not as easy to come by as it would be now, obviously. But interestingly, we get... I think they're referred to as the furry dinosaurs, but they appear to be dinosaurs with feathers turning up at one point. They're the the dinosaurs from the north, where it's cold. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, of course, they're furries. Uh, but, yeah, long before that became a thing that we would see um, depictions of dinosaurs with feathery coverings, we see it here in flesh, don't we? Mm, yeah, I, I did notice that on a reread and thought that's more in line with present-day scientific thinking. And for a comic as well, we've also got to have that other great thing, which is characters, the cowboys themselves, narrating their own doom. So we don't just show, but they also tell us what's happening to them on the page. Yeah, it's I uh, choke or I... Uh, <laughs> yes. I uh, um, Don't let it shoot me, boss. Don't let it eat me alive, boss. Shoot me. I noticed the first death in there is a guy called Maverick. And page two, he's saying to Joe, this is a hell world. Thank God this is my last tour of duty. Uh-oh. So, of course, page three, dead. Yeah. It's, it's another trope from, you know, Vietnam movies or, or buddy cop action dramas where oh, I'm going to retire next week. You, you know that guy's dead in 10 minutes. Yes, not going to make it out of the episode, unfortunately. And he doesn't, yes. But, yeah, great, great uh, British comic book action of characters going to their doom in a, ti- in a dinosaur's mouth and then telling you exactly what's happening to them. Uh, ain't never seen a tyrannosaur that big before. He would never see one again. <laughs> and and for 12 metres tall, which these dinosaurs apparently are, and each one weighing tonnes, they're very light on their feet because they seem to be able to sneak up behind people a lot. <laughs> yes, these silent dinosaurs that creep up on you. We can expect it of giant spiders, but a tyrannosaur, as you say, that's that big, uh, it seems a bit weird they creep up on you, but they do frequently, yes. Well, in the uh, the Dino Files book there, the spiders are hissing, but not in the original progs. Oh, that's right. Been added, okay. uh, yeah, that's been added in on the reprint. These reprints, uh, the book that you have there, these are taken from reprints that were done for the annuals back in 82, 84 and 89. And because the annuals were a different aspect ratio of the page to the original prog, they're taller and skinnier, the artwork on every page has been modified, very similar to the Judge Red Eagle reprints from the 80s, where in order to make it longer and skinnier, extra things have been added. So where in the original, the bottom of the page might finish on a character's knees, in this you'll notice like somebody's drawn some dodgy legs continuing on, or at the top it might be a building and they just extend that out. But that, that's done to every page in this reprint. Ah, right. That explains why on some of the title pages they have that from the 2000 AD Memory Banks caption. Yes, that, that's what was originally for the annuals. And the annuals also skipped a few pages, which have been put back in for this Dino Files book. But where you would get an episode ending on a half page because you'd have an ad underneath for model aeroplanes or, or things like that, they sometimes bodge it and just cut out the recap of right. half of the first page of the next one and stick them together to make one page. Uh, okay. You'll notice it in uh, the final episode, which was originally Prog 19, in the book that, well, that wasn't reprinted in the annuals. So in the book, if you have a look at 19, it has a, a, a much bigger gap on the top and bottom of the page. Yes. Because that's just been reproduced from the original prog. Uh, I see. Right. 
Yeah, I'm looking at the one before it, which, as you say, fills the pages here, and then then you get the gap in appearing at the end on the uh, issue 19. Fascinating. The weird and wonderful ways of reproducing and reprinting this stuff from the originals. <laughs> as I said earlier, I'm, I'm being silly now and buying reprints and Titan versions and, and French versions and everything. So I kind of look out for these sort of things. And, of course, uh, it also made the cover... Flesh was on the cover of the prog um, a fair few times, um, including that rather memorable um, and very disturbing moment when there's some sort of uh, time accident and you get a tyrannosaur with three human heads. Um, yes. Yes, we have Prog 17 there with a cover from Brian Bolland with somebody screaming, oh, no, Johnson, Mills and Shepard have got mixed up with a Tyrannosaur in the time machine. So Mills, I think we know who that might be. Yeah. Shepard would probably be Jan Shepard, the logo designer at the time. But I don't know who Johnson is. I'm not sure no. who was on the staff back then named Johnson. All oh, right. So and nods to uh, people in the offices as well. Yeah. Who would somebody tell us who was Johnson? <laughs> Yeah, fantastic stuff. Very memorable, creepy moment uh, on the cover of 17. And then, of course, we got a couple of covers, uh, Prog 87 and Prog 93 at the back of the book, which is a big hungry cover and giant scorpions, both by Bellard and Ali. There were a few as well. Earlier on, there was a Prog 8 was a cover. Prog... Maybe Prog 14. Right. There was also one by Barry Mitchell. So there were, there were a couple of covers back then. They, I mean, Prog 3 was a cover by Raymond Solar, which which I just love. It's the don't let it eat me, boss, shoot me alive. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, and 8 is credited to Boykes, although it looks a bit rough for him with purple and blue dinosaurs, which are weird looking. Prog 14 by Barry Mitchell, which is the spiders. And uh, another one where the characters are screaming, you you don't get speech bubbles on covers anymore, and I think that's a shame. Oh, I love a speech bubble on a cover. I always did. Well, as you were saying, that as they were getting eaten, they were talking on, on Prog 14 there, you've got one guy in a T-Rex's mouth saying, the dinosaurs have got us. Another guy in a Pteranodon's mouth saying, the Pteranodons have got us. And now, with the third one, the spiders have got us. So we've got one in each kind of creature, and they're all talking to each other while they're getting eaten. Now, I'm going to turn you towards the end of the book for a moment because uh, we get a story, I think there's a story from Prog 1526, Hand of Glory, which is like an origin story for Claw Carver. Mm. Um, That was Pat Mills coming back to it. There were other flesh books which aren't included in the Dino Files, and then we get Pat doing what he's done in recent years, which is coming back to one of his creations and picking up the reins and running, writing it again because we get the Texas story that started somewhere about Prog 1724 with um, an artist that Pat found, I think, in an art competition, uh, mm. James Mackay taking over. Um, doing an updated version with uh, it's Claw Carver's daughter, I think, isn't it? Yeah, not my cup of tea. Right. Um, it, it, Pat had already gone back to the flesh well with uh, Legend of Shamana back in the eight hundreds, and I wasn't really super keen on that. 
Then it was Steve White and Dan Abnett did Chronocide, which was a, a dinosaur flesh thing in the 900s there, which apparently upset Uncle Pat a fair bit. And, yeah, Texas Texas All Up is 180 pages, I think, something like that, with James yeah. Mackay. Now, it's 180 pages to try and get across what originally came out in 80 pages. So I like the thrill-packed, short, sharp burst of thrill power from the early days a bit more than these later ones where Uncle Pat goes back and sort of... I don't want to be overly critical, but it comes across sometimes with ABC Warriors as well as retreading old ground, but this time taking ten episodes to say what he did in three. Right, Okay. Uh, interesting. I mean, it did. We get James Mackay's sketchbook at the past at, at the back of the book. It did, I suppose, give some other great cover artists a chance to do a cover of Old One Eye um, for the prog. Possibly people like yourself who just like love those original nineteen issues uh, of Flesh Book One when it was just hard hitting, straightforward um, dinosaurs, time travel, and cowboys. So. Yeah, okay. So that's not your favourite. You're clearly a book one chap, Terry. <laughs> that's the one for me. I, I enjoyed the, uh, was it Gore? Yeah, Gorehead that came out around Prog 2000 with Clint Langley on art. I yes. thought that was okay. But I don't think it went anywhere after that, did it? It just, it was a little 10 parter that was setting things up, but then didn't progress. Yeah. It, well, yes, that's right. It's the Gorehead character, the one that's got... Uh, is that the one that's got the 666 branded on it? Yeah, I think he's he originally came about with the James Mackay artwork stuff, but... Right. Yeah, it, it, it didn't do it for me, that James Mackay book. But the original 19 progs, black and white, uh, a variety of artists, the uh, the quintessential flesh story for you. It is, it is, and... And Old One Eyes had a, a great legacy through the years after that. We, we had Satanists in yep. the Cursed Earth, and then the grandchild of Old One Eye, Golgotha, turning up in ABC Warriors. And Satanists, of course, coming back in later ABC Warriors stuff, where Nemesis's son has him as a pet. Yes, that's right, uh, which we've not long done when we did... Uh, the second Hachette collection of Nemesis to Warlock. And I'll mention again Luke Williams, who's been on this podcast, his sort of family history of 2000 AD dinosaurs, which you can find on the Everything Comes Back to 2000 AD blog site. I'll have a look for that. I shall put the link in the show notes again, hopefully, if I can remember to. Yeah. Okay, so of the artists that we see in this volume, the the Dinophiles, um, which ones are you going to pick out as your favourite, Terry? Well, Boyks. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a really nice, clean, a clean line. And the dynamism, although, as I say, that a lot of that, the credit is due to Doug Church, according to Mills. It's got that, it's got that hardcore gore as well, which when, when you're six or seven years old, you're not allowed to go to the pictures and watch this. You can't go to the movies. So your way of getting this kind of crazy action is through the comic books. Our parents didn't know what we were reading. They didn't look at what we were getting into. And some of the 
oh, <laughs> some of those people getting bitten in half and eaten, that was a massive thrill for a kid that age. Yes, they assume we're reading about Dandare and robots, but actually <laughs> we're looking at dinosaurs ripping cowboys apart, um, which is great stuff. Okay, so it's that early stuff and his, his clean lines that uh, get you. What about the Grail Page game then, Terry? If we can get all this original art and buy it for you, what would you choose to have for the collection to uh, put up there with the complete run of 2000 AD? Oh, <laughs> there's, there's around about four. Um, okay. Part four, page five. Uh, let me see what page that is. They're, most of them are pretty much Earl Reagan standing in front of old one eye saying, I'm going to fry you. Right. <laughs> hag brain or, you know, you, you wart riddled scumbag. Yeah, the wart ridden hag's coming in for the kill, but I could break her jaws. And um, there's also a bit in episode three where he actually jumps up and blinds her. That's, that's her real origin story where it's got to be the goad. He's yes. going to stick the goad in her eye. And that's fantastic stuff. But I think if. You know, in our imaginary choice of anything, page one, episode one, prog one. Why did the dinosaurs become extinct? Find out in flesh. Uh, it, yeah. It's got everything there, doesn't it? It does, yes. Uh, it's a beautiful page, beautiful image. It sells the whole concept of uh, flesh to you. You've got sort of like a, a futuristic vehicle you've got cowboys firing you've got somebody in a in the clutches of a tyrannosaur uh, when dinosaurs rule the earth it's fantastic isn't it yeah yeah that's the one okay well we should grant you that post it on the socials <laughs> put it up on the facebook art gallery and it becomes yours forevermore terry virtually um, <laughs> virtually yes sadly uh pay issue or prog three page one i've got a ramon solar page Again, it's old one eye. It's the hag monster wants blood. Uh, when I did Nemesis the Warlock, I chose a uh, Brian Tolbert Satanus page, and I'm going to choose another dinosaur page there as well. Um, I had a feeling you might go for the very first page of the book, so I'll go for for the uh, third prog. That's that is a beauty, isn't it? Yeah, it is a beauty with the dinosaurs. And as you say, I mean, Ramon Solo, I do love a bit Ramon Solo, though he may, he may have been under the deadlines for some of the book. But, you know, they were pumping out five or six pages a week and all this artwork being posted backwards and forwards from Europe to the uh, 2000 AD offices, to the nerve centre. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't want to denigrate him. He's a great artist, but there are some, I have noticed there are some issues of this and some later ones. I think it was Black Hawk. They just looked a bit rushed. But yeah. still, fantastic layouts, great dynamism. You know, you wouldn't see this sort of stuff in the Beano. No. <laughs> this wasn't happening in the Beano or the Dandy at the time, was it? No. Um, yeah, they weren't having characters yelling out, shoot me, boss, before it eats me alive. <laughs> and, of course, Flesh was huge back then. It, I think it was more popular than Dread, that's for sure. Um, in those very, very early days, it... At the time, going through the original progs, as I was this morning, the back page was given over to Flesh for the Flesh card game, which you could oh, cut right. out and keep for four weeks. There would be little uh, eight, 
eight cards to a page, which you are encouraged to get your scissors out and chop them up, stick them to the back of a used cornflakes packet, or they would also fit on playing cards, but ask your parents' permission first. And there's that back page futuristic TV ad by Kevin O'Neill that's excellent. That's in the back of the uh, reprint dino files. The only colour page we've got here is a bit of Kevin O'Neill right at the end, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there was, there was a colour back page as well advertising the game coming up. And I looked at it and I couldn't work out, but it looks like it looks like either Ken Reed or Leo Baxendale. Really? All right. Yeah, it's... Um, it's some people banging on a ceiling because the upstairs neighbours are making too much noise and the wife says, oh, they're playing that flesh card game, you'll never get them to shut up. And it looks like, as I say, Ken Reed or Leo Baxendale, I can't spot it straight away like some of the fans can, but it has that humour comic vibe to it. All right, I shall have to remind myself about that when I post it when this episode comes out uh, sometime in August, Terry. No worries. Okay, so that's the package. Uh, it's got an introduction by Pat Mills. It's got some art sketches and character designs by James Mackay for the reboot at the back, um, plus a couple of the poster, uh, sorry, a couple of the cover images and that Kevin O'Neill page. And it is currently fifteen ninety nine from the two thousand AD store, or I've also got the nine ninety nine digital, which I have to say. The digital version does look very crisp and sharp. They've really sort of, uh, I think, um, you know, mastered the reproduction on that one as well. That really looks very nice. Some of the pages in here got that slight muddy quality that you get because the paper stock is, it's all right, but it's not quite uh, the glossy paper that we get on some reprints, is it? Well, this is a, I think it's a, a poor reprint and, you know, I, I don't, want to get in a criticising rebellion, but this, the Harlem Heroes, the Mark One, Volume 1 and 2, they're, they're okay and they're nice and cheap and a good way to look back on the old stuff without buying all the back issues. But I'm sure there's a market for us diehard fans who want deluxe editions. I, I would love a deluxe edition, Flesh Book 1, hardcover, with the artwork at its original size, cleaned up and looking nice, you know, like the the uh, Case Files 1 hardcover edition, the, yes. uh, the the early Dan Dare 2000 AD years with the Robusters and ABC Warriors. Um, I've just put in a, a pre-order for Control by uh, Rob Williams and Chris Weston because that's looking like oh, a nice yes. hardcover edition. Yeah. Um, recently got the Strontium Dog Search and Destroy files that had been very nicely looked after and printed on glossy paper with the hard covers. Coming up on the podcast in a few weeks. Is it? Yeah. I'll, I'll have a little chat with you about that when we finish recording too. We, All right. We might be, uh, maybe we might pass one on to you to give away for charity. Oh, very nice. Mm. Thank you, Terry. That was fantastic. But it is interesting about, um, you know, as you say, that the artists have to be messed about a bit for this particular paperback, uh, stretched and or cropped and have bits added in as well. Plus, they've gone with those memory bank stickers on some of the pages, um, which is slightly unusual. I think it would be a case of when Rebellion took over, they would have been given all the films that have been used for reprints. And so they were the nearest to hand would have been the films that were used for the annual reprints. 
Right. So they've just gone with those. But oh, to get a nice restored book one in hardcover, oh, that would be lovely. And if people are fans of uh, Ballard and Ellie and are looking at book two, I would recommend picking up 2000 AD Extreme number seven. I'm not sure if there's any copies left in the 2000 AD shop, but that was a, a reprint series that they ran for a little while a few years ago, and that has them at larger than original size. Really nice and crisp. Lovely. Well, yes, look out for those. Those extreme editions are quite nice. I've got some of those to do um, some mean team and mean arena for the podcast as well. And there's even a, uh, a Brian Boland page of flesh in there. Oh, right. Okay. Anything else from your notes about flesh, particularly book one and this reprint, Terry? I think we've covered most of it there. So it is great fun. It is available. The digital copy, uh, I think, is nice and crisp. But as you say, if they ever got a hardback, glossy paper, nice original size art reprint of book one, that would be uh, fantastic. We'd queue up for that one. Yes, most definitely. So, Terry, it's been a welcome return, uh, as I say, all the way back from 2017 when uh, we were... (laughs) the early days of the podcast. Um, anything else <laughs> Anything else you wanted to plug for yourself? Anything, projects you've got on the go? Um, look, my eBay store is still kicking along. It's Terry World Collectibles. And uh, as I say, there's 3,000 spare issues of the 2000 AD up for sale. Most of them don't go through the eBay store. Most of that is uh, sold privately through Facebook. Always happy to help collectors out, particularly in Australia, because it's much harder for us here to find them. So if, you, if you're looking to fill some gaps, let me know and I can try and help out. But, yeah, Terry Will Collectibles on eBay for all your Marvel and DC garbage. Um, and if you want some nice 2000 AD stuff, then give us a shout privately. Excellent. And once again, congratulations on the premiership. Congratulations on nearly completing the run. Uh, I'm fascinated to know that you're still carrying on with all the reprints. Even Was it the uh, French reprints as well? <laughs> Well, Uncle Pat often says in interviews, oh, we're treated awfully in the in the UK. You, you ought to see the French editions of this stuff. They're beautiful. So just on a whim, I bought a copy of, um, I think it's Demon Killer by on Slain with Mills writing and Glenn Fabry on art. And yes. it is beautiful. It is beautiful. I bought a Titan hardcover edition of Slain the King at the same time. And this is even nicer than that. And those old Titan hardcovers were, were absolutely beautiful. But I wanted to have a look now. They're only 48 pages, so you've got to buy seven of them to get what you would probably get in one or two Rebellion reprints. But they are huge size, beautiful colour, glossy paper and hardcover and will help me learn to speak French. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> The thrill power and the and the power of foreign languages at the same time. Fantastic stuff. That's right. Terry, thank you again for giving up your time. Uh, we've managed to get over the time difference just about, although I got it slightly wrong. But, uh, yeah, thank you again for being on the book club. Thank you for having me, Eamon. It's been a pleasure. I won't say same time next year because I said that last time and it's been three years. <laughs> see you in five years? Possibly, yes. We'll see how the podcast goes. All right. 
And thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. As ever, find out all the details at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the 2000 AD forums, and on Spotify. And get in touch by emailing me at mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And that will do us. Until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's uh, goodbye from me and from Adelaide. Goodbye from me.